Hello and welcome to Coding Codices. I'm Eileen Malcolm, a member of the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Subcommittee. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Fagan Davis, who is the author of numerous catalogues and articles about medieval manuscripts, as well as the monograph La Chronique Anonyme Universelle, Reading and Writing History in 15th Century France. Dr. Davis has been Executive Director of the Medieval Academy of America since 2013, a year that also marked the launch of her Manuscript Road Trip blog. This popular website provides a virtual state-by-state tour of manuscripts across the United States, with a special emphasis on collections that are isolated and often overlooked. Our conversation focuses on the Voynich Manuscript, or Yale University Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, MS-408. This famously arcane manuscript remains undeciphered, or what Dr. Davis calls an irresistible mystery. But with the help of the DigiPal resource, Dr. Davis has been able to draw conclusions about the scribes involved, without needing to read the text. We also discuss the future of medieval studies in the digital age, including the most exciting tools available for scholarship and public engagement. Many of our listeners will have heard of the Voynich, but you're really the expert on it. So maybe we can start by you giving us a brief introduction to the manuscript of what makes it unique and what our best avenues are for future research on it. The thing about this manuscript that's so really interesting is that, well, first of all, it has these plants that are unidentifiable in the first section. But what's really interesting about it is actually this alphabet that it's written in, in that it doesn't appear anywhere else that anyone has ever been able to find, not for lack of trying, but it doesn't seem to just be random gibberish. It seems to have some kind of grammar. So there are prefixes, there are suffixes, there are certain forms that almost always appear at the end of a word or characters that appear in combinations. Ever since the manuscript first became an object of study in about 1912, It has drawn the attention of cryptologists and linguists and xenobiologists studying aliens, people interested in the occult. People really want it to be this compendium of magic and secret knowledge, and I really don't think it is. So you've got this first section of these plants, which have leaves and roots and flowers. And then we have these very strange diagrams that also have no precedent diagrams that appear to be astrological or astronomical. In the next section, we actually have zodiacal diagrams. Someone has gone through and labeled these with the months of the year in a slightly later hand in some kind of romance language. Voynichologists argue quite vociferously over the origins of these later annotations. And you also then have in this section this recurring motif of naked ladies floating in baskets, holding stars like little balloons. I couldn't even possibly begin to tell you what it means. Next section, my favorite part of the book, which is the balneological section, where you have ladies floating in pools. It's generally thought to have something to do with balneology, and perhaps it has something to do with women's health. So you've got botany, you've got astrology and astronomy, 
you've got balneology, and then at the very end is this section that look like recipes of some kind. So it does seem to be some kind of a scientific compendium. We just can't read it. The best cryptologists in the world, people who were working in World War II for the US government have worked on this manuscript for decades, and no one has ever been able to read it. We don't know what language it represents in the first place. The manuscript has been at Yale since 1969, uh, when it was given to Yale by a book dealer in New York, Hans P. Krauss, who couldn't sell it. And Wilfred Voynich, who owned it for 50 years before that, he and his heirs, they couldn't sell it. Nobody would buy it because nobody knew whether it was authentic or not. And so in the end, Krauss just gave it to Yale. They've done some material testing on it. They did carbon-14 on little slivers of parchment and determined that it was written between, I think, 1408 and 1435. And then x-ray fluorescence testing on the inks and the pigments concluded that they're consistent with medieval recipes. I'm pretty comfortable with that early 15th century date. There are people out there who really want to believe it's a forgery. I don't find that at all compelling as a conclusion. And the 15th century date also knocks out some previously advanced hypotheses about who might have created it. Yeah, so Roger Bacon was the first published theory, but he was long dead by the early 15th century. And another fan favorite is da Vinci, but he wasn't born yet. So normally I would ask how you got interested in your research, but in this case, everyone is interested in the Voynich <laughs> to the point that, as you note in your 2020 article in Manuscript Studies, medievalists have been conditioned to roll their eyes when the manuscript is mentioned. I still would love to know what drew you to this frequently debated topic, but also how you keep it fresh and what kinds of new approaches you've been trying. I first met this manuscript when I was a grad student at Yale. In my Latin paleography class, Robert Babcock, who was the curator at Beinecke, brought the Voynich out to show us. I, like everyone else, was immediately drawn to it and by the mystery of it. And at the time, my older brother, who's now a professor of cryptology at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, was getting a PhD in computer science. And I was convinced that between the two of us, we would be able to get this sorted. And of course, we got nowhere. My actual first connection with the manuscript was I, I was Robert Babcock's assistant at the time. I was the curatorial assistant at the Beinecke for about five years. Frankly, the person who is the curator at the Beinecke, the cross you have to bear is you are also the curator of the Voynich manuscript because it takes up so much air in terms of email, phone calls, media requests. They've had to put out restraining orders against wow, people who really? come in and, and accuse, you know, Ray Clemens, the current curator, of hiding something about it. And so when I was working for Bob Babcock, he put me in charge of Voynich correspondence because he just couldn't anymore. So part of my job was answering requests for images and corresponding with people who sent in their theories. And I became kind of a, a debunker of theories. And it occurred to me somewhere, someone said, you know, uh, we don't really know how many scribes there are. We need a real paleographer. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is the job I was born to do. And so I decided that I would try and tackle that problem. You know, it's a really interesting problem from a theoretical paleographical perspective. 
we're talking about a language that isn't identified, that isn't written anywhere else. You can't use your traditional paleographical tools. Paleography is partly about literacy and learning to read the script. You can't do that. And part of it is about connoisseurship, about figuring out date and place by comparing the script with known other samples that have a known date and place. We can't do that. So all we can really do is try to figure out what are the features of a particular handwriting that will allow us to distinguish between them the way you might look at ampersands or other abbreviations and punctuation and things that really can be individualized for a particular scribe. So that's really why I started this project with DigiCal was so that I could try and do a really deep dive into the graphic properties of the manuscript and figure out what were the tells of particular scribes. What were the individual features that would allow us to distinguish between scribes? And, and I think in the end that I've been fairly successful in doing that. So we've known for quite some time that there were two, at least two hands in the manuscript. And what I ended up zeroing in on was this letter that looks like an M. So it's basically three minims with this little flourish at the end. And as it turns out, this flourish is a tell. Scribes are really consistent about it, and it's different from one scribe to the next. So with this scribe, the flourish swings back to this middle minim. It's really consistent. Uh, and if we go to scribe two, it doesn't swing back over the letter at all. That is really sufficient to distinguish between scribes in the manuscript. And that's what allowed me to come up with my, my corpus of five scribes. How do those five scribes map onto the thematic sections of the manuscript? So that's a really interesting and important question. The codicological structure of this manuscript it's not totally bonkers, just in terms of the basic structure. There are choirs of eight or 10 or, you know, bifolia, nested, except for these crazy foldouts. What's really weird, though, is that the bifolia in some of the choirs vary by scribe. So the yeah. outermost bifolia might be by scribe one. The next nested bifolia is entirely scribe two, and then you wow. might have two scribe ones. That makes no sense in terms of the way that manuscripts are, are constructed and the way that they're written, the process for writing a manuscript. It just doesn't make any sense. The implication is that the manuscript is misbound. It's definitely been bound and rebound several times. We're probably in the third binding now. And at some point, probably in the late 15th into the early 16th century, the manuscript was taken apart and it was misbound. And so that's really interesting. All of the balneological section, that's entirely scribe two. The zodiac section is all scribe four. So for the most part, sections do tend to be produced by different scribes. I've only found one place where you find multiple scribes on a particular page, folio 115 recto, where you can see that there's a change of hand. The first part of the page is scribe two, and then scribe three takes over with this new paragraph. Other than that, entire bifolia tend to be by single scribes. It's very strange. 
And it, it's not at all clear to me whether we're talking about five different intellectual authors or five people taking dictation or five different people copying from an exemplar. Any of those things can be true. It's so amazing, the idea of five scribes having produced this manuscript, particularly given that there are currently zero people who understand what these glyphs mean. <laughs> you can kind of imagine how it might have been misbound mm -hmm. by people who couldn't read it. What kind of social relationships might have existed in order for five scribes to be involved mm. in the production of this manuscript? Well, I will tell you what my fantasy about what it is is. Okay. What I want is for it to be a community of women who are passing along women's knowledge from one generation or from one wise senior person to the next. That's what I really, really, really want it to be. You know, you've got these recipes, botanicals, balneology. Some of the illustrations are almost gynecological. It's what it feels like. There's a group of scholars in Turkey who have a theory that it is a transcription of a written language, the way that, you know, anthropologists traveled around the U.S., you know, 150 years ago, transcribing Native American languages. So they're phonemic transcriptions. And their theory is that it is, in fact, a transcription of a medieval Turkish dialect that was not a written language. And they're actually publishing a full translation, so I'm going to have to hire someone who reads Turkish. I was wondering also about some of the challenges of using digital technologies designed for mm -hmm. Latin paleography for yep. a unique glyph set. Things yep. like how are we supposed to verify the results of the transcription software? There are a lot of challenges involved. Yeah. One of the things that Voynichologists, which is the term for people who study uh, Voynichese, the things that they do in order to apply computer analysis to the manuscript you have to take the glyphs and substitute ASCII characters for them so that then a computer can parse them. So there are different transcription alphabets that have been developed over the years by different people. There are probably 10 different transcription alphabets and people get very passionate about which one they are devoted to. And Voynich Pal, uh, or I should say DigiPal, requires an ASCII tag to be applied to each character that you annotate. And so those are the kind of choices you have to make. For Voynich, I had to make some decisions about which transcription alphabet I wanted to use. And one of them is very extensive and applies one character for each Voynich's glyph. And that's called V101. So that's the one that I chose so that I could then use Voynich Pal to pull out the annotations for a particular letter or the annotations on a particular page, or even then eventually with from a particular scribe. And the more refined my work got, the more effective that was. So at one point, I had initially, as you know, I initially thought there were four, and then it was, wait, stop the presses, there are five. I was checking my work. I went and I pulled out all the annotations. I think it must have been of the M. So I had all the annotations for scribe three. I was looking at them, and I kept seeing these outliers. And then finally, I just sort of embraced it. That's what happens. You kind of give into it and go, you know what? I really think these are different. 
And so when I pulled out the outliers, I saw they were in fact from a conjoint bifolium. And so that was when I decided, oh my God, we've got a fifth scribe. So while checking my work that way, that actually allowed me to refine my conclusions a little bit. That kind of leads me into a more general question about the role of the expert in our current digital world. Do you think that the traditional medievalist skill set is still useful in the ways that it used to be? Or what kinds of skills should we be learning now or revising? I think we have to take our traditional skill set. So paleography, for example. There's a real place for paleography in this digital environment, for sure. I mean, more and more images coming online, more manuscripts, manuscripts that have never been studied, really, that are now finally being digitized and put online. I mean, look at the Vatican. You know, we may have had a handful of fifth century unshal. We're going to have a lot more. And the more information we have, the more we can refine the work of our predecessors who didn't have as much data as we have, who didn't have the way of comparing manuscripts side by side from different parts of the world, the way we can in Mirador and in other shared Canvas environments. We've got IIIF, my God, what an incredibly powerful tool. I can take a manuscript from Boston and really lay it side by side with a manuscript from Paris or Italy or the Vatican or wherever and start paging through them and comparing them have everything in the same format and be able to pull them into the same viewers. You know, I was tweeting this morning about one of the tour Bibles that had been in Trier and was dismembered. And there are bits at Yale and bits at the Getty and bits in Berlin and it's all over the place. And now we have the opportunity to pull all those together and look at them in a single workspace. In particular, I'm, I'm a big IIIF cheerleader and I think everyone should be learning what IIIF is and how to use it. Ben Albritton just did a series of webinars through the Bibliographical Society specifically on working with IIIF. Those are online. A lot of great resources. Is there anything else beyond IIIF that you would recommend to people who are looking to learn more about digital paleographical research? There are a lot of really great tools that are online for just digging in, you know. So V. Himmel, is a really magnificent resource. Obviously, Bibliophily, go to Digital Scriptorium and explore and just see what's out there. Go to Biblissima, which is this amazing project being run by the Irashte uh, in Paris and allows you to cross-search huge digital collections. And I think more of that is gonna happen. There's gonna be more cross-searching. You know, I think interoperability is the, is the key, the key to the future. The processes of digitization that are happening now seem particularly relevant to the Voynich given that it has tremendous public appeal mm -hmm. and holds the interest of a lot of people who mm -hmm. are not medieval specialists. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you what you think of the media attention that this manuscript mm -hmm. has received and continues to receive and whether your research might influence how reporting on the Voynich happens in the future. Yeah, you know, for so many people, it just is this object out in space that you've heard of and you roll your eyes. I'm not a junior faculty anywhere. You know, I'll be a lecturer at Yale next year. But for the last 20 years, I've been an independent scholar. I've been a manuscript consultant. And now as director of the Medieval Academy, which is independent. If I were doing other things, more, more traditional academic career, 
I probably wouldn't touch this manuscript with a 10-foot pole. I mean, I'm in a unique position in that I don't have to worry about a tenure committee. I don't care, <laughs> frankly. I really enjoy this work and I, I'm trying to give the manuscript a little credibility because it really is an extraordinary object. It isn't just images. It isn't just a joke. It isn't just something that people think aliens gave us. Some people think that, but I mean, it is a real 600 year old medieval manuscript and it has a fascinating history, such interesting people and it's been thought about and people have devoted their lives to it. When Umberto Eco was at Yale a few years ago, the only thing he wanted to see at the Beinecke was the Voynich manuscript. It's an irresistible mystery. No one can read it. The images make no sense. People have heard of it, even though they don't really know what it is. They're like, oh my God, the Voynich again. I think that interest can be leveraged to increase the public interest in medieval manuscripts and in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. It's a really fascinating object. It really is. And the people associated with it, I find really interesting. So I spend a lot of time on Voynich Reddit. Uh, I've gotten to know a lot of the people who work on it. I've started getting regular emails from people who want to tell me about their solution. Sometimes Ray Clemens will get something and he'll write them and say, why don't you send that to Lisa? <laughs> so it's kind of like you've got your old job back. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm the unofficial curator of the Voynich now. I've actually started collaborating a little bit with a linguistics professor at Yale who uses the Voynich to teach linguistic theory. So she's using my work, Distinguishing Scribes, to help with her linguistic work and vice versa. One thing I forgot to mention is that these linguistic patterns that I mentioned, some of them vary by scribe, which is really bizarre. So there are certain combinations that appear very frequently in scribe two that you hardly ever see in scribe one, things like that. And, you know, nobody knows what to make of that. It, it does potentially suggest that they're not all just copying from one exemplar. Yeah, uh, or even the idea that they're spoken dialects rather than a written language. If you did a, a written transcription of someone from Georgia reading the same text as someone from Southie in Boston, you would end up with phonemic transcriptions that look really different from one another. What do you think the next step in Voynich research should be? What's the most promising avenue right now? The question that I really want to answer next is how many letter forms are there? Let's look, say, at this sequence right here that looks like a four and a zero. It's always legated. This character, which most people consider to be a separate character from the O, it hardly ever appears without the O following it. Oh. So I would actually make the argument that the whole four zero is actually a single character. So that's the kind of work that I'm doing now is thinking about from a paleographic point of view, how can we think about ductus, the direction that the pens are moving and what kind of ligatures there might be and how that can help us actually determine how many glyphs there are in this alphabet. And I think answering that question could be really useful for the linguists. There are some opportunities here where better multispectral imaging might be useful. One of the foldouts, the fold has left a lot of the text pretty much illegible uh, or almost illegible. So there are some opportunities still to reveal 
text that hasn't been properly transcribed yet. There are some places in the manuscript where uh, water stain has obscured some of the writing. There's a signature on the very first leaf that's legible in, under ultraviolet, but there's a lot of controversy about what you actually see when it has been imaged. You know, I mean, Yale is really committed to open access of imaging, so any kind of images that they ever take are always going to be open access, always going to be free, always going to be downloadable. And I think the, the Voynich community really appreciates that commitment. Absolutely. Open data for all. Yes, exactly. You have been listening to Coding Codices, a podcast by the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Subcommittee. I'm Eileen Malcolm, and my guest on this episode was Lisa Fagan-Davis, speaking about her recent work on the scribes of the Voynich Manuscript. Dr. Davis's findings have been published in the Spring 2020 issue of the journal Manuscript Studies. You can listen to more episodes of Coding Codices on our website and SoundCloud or get in touch with us at dmpostgrads at gmail.com.